Good morning. Happy to see you here this morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, my name is John. We are making our way through Mark's gospel. We are at a section in that gospel that uh, is cause for a great deal of debate in the Protestant church. Uh, welcome this morning. We won't be debating. Isn't that great news? We're looking at Mark uh, chapter 13, the uh, second half of this chapter. Little theologians, uh, you did not see this, but the foyer just outside those doors over the course of this week was filled with painters. Could you smell the paint when you came in? Actually, I couldn't smell the paint myself, but the, uh, the narthex right outside those doors, everything out there was, uh, was repainted. There were ladders and there were drop cloths and it was quite a mess, uh, but it looks beautiful now. I'd like for you to draw a picture of that working scene. Draw a picture of the narthex of your church filled with painters. You with me, little theologians? Filled with painters. Because the application in this passage is an application about a doorkeeper. This passage calls us as Christians doorkeepers. And that's where we're going in this text. But you can work on that picture of painters beautifying our narthex. Our passage again is Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. Before we read the passage, let's pray together. Father, here we are again, the Lord's Day, a day to commemorate the resurrected life of our Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for being present with us at this pulpit and at this table, your table. Would you assert your authority at this pulpit as you do at your table? This is your pulpit. Would you use me for your purposes, that your word would be heard, understood, and applied? Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. In Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, let's look at it together. But in those days after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
This is the word of our Lord. Well, as we jump into this passage, I want you to notice right away what verse 24 says. It says that uh, this is to happen after the tribulation. Do you see that there in verse 24? After that tribulation. Now, this word for tribulation, if I'm perfectly honest with you, and maybe some of you feel this as well, if I'm perfectly honest, I feel that that translation, tribulation, has somewhat worn out its welcome. I don't know why it's always translated as tribulation. It's not a very common word for us today, is it? The word literally means uh, affliction or distress or suffering or pressure or trouble. And I think almost all those words are better than the word tribulation. But there you have it in verse 24, uh, after that tribulation. So we should ask, when we look at this passage, is what is that tribulation or what is that affliction or distress? It's something really big, something really irreverent, and it's actually something coming soon. It's really big. You go backwards and look at verse 19. In those days there will be such tribulation, that is affliction or distress, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That's verse 19. That has to come first. It's something really big. But it's also something really irreverent. You see in verse 14, there will be an abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. That's a person, and that person is a he, and he's standing where he shouldn't. An abomination is a perversion, is a desecration. Something really sacrilegious is happening, and it ruins something. It defiles it. It makes it a desolation. It's not just something big but it's something really irreverent. And then it's something soon as well. Verse 14, when you see this, in verse 23, I have told you beforehand. So when our passage begins in verse 24 with after that tribulation, it's something big, something irreverent, and it's something that seems to be coming rather soon. And that something I said last week was the person General Titus coming into the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And he comes in and he stands in the temple. He ransacks the entire city. He burns almost everything. He kills more than a million Jews. He makes more than 100,000 of them slaves. And every citizen of the city of Jerusalem is going to become a Roman prisoner that belongs to him. He displaces the population and the temple is completely destroyed as it is today. Judaism was altered by that man. And verse 24 says, after that tribulation. That's what is meant here. After that tribulation of A.D. 70, something else is going to happen. And it's really important for us when we look at this passage to see in verse 24, a looking out now into the distant future, certainly beyond simply A.D. 70, And this future event, the subject matter of our passage this morning, it's the second coming of Jesus. He will come again. Remember, Jesus has told his disciples over and over again up to this point in the story of redemption, he's told them that he must die and that he must rise again. He's also already told them that there will be many who come claiming to be him, counterfeits, imposters. But now what he's saying is a little bit different. 
He says, I will come again. The plan of redemption, it's not like this slideshow, is it, where you just go from one image to the next to the, to the next, like these stacked events. We're saved not to simply watch a slideshow of the death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, ascension of Jesus, and return of Jesus. We're actually saved that we can be with Jesus. What is he saying? I will come again. I will be with you uninterrupted, in person, for all eternity. And that's what this passage is about. The the passage uh, tends to be read as a bit of a harrowing, frightening passage. But this passage is a passage about God's plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption is for Christian people to live for Him and with Him for all eternity. It's not a passage of fear. It's a passage of promise. God's plan of redemption is for Christian people to live for him and with him for all eternity. Well, let's begin where Jesus begins. Make no mistake at all. He will come, verses 24 through 27. He will come. For the past few weeks or months, Jesus has been predicting his death and his resurrection. And this, as we know, has actually confused the disciples. They think of the death of their rabbi and then the resurrection of their rabbi. And what they begin to think is they begin to think that, well, Judaism in that kind of circumstance really is going to change quite a bit. And we've heard the disciples jockeying for power. When Jesus rises from the dead, I wonder what the rule of the synagogue, the rule of the temple is going to look like. And the the religious order that the disciples are thinking about is a religious order in which they really want to have power and authority. But Jesus has just told them something. He's told them that Judaism is actually going to be flattened. Remember the very beginning of this chapter, what has he said? The great buildings of Jerusalem and the temple will what? Verse 2, they'll be thrown down. And then what? He's told them that they as followers of him, they'll be persecuted. The temple is actually going to be gone, but there's still going to be a synagogue, and you'll be beaten in those synagogues. You'll be tried, and you'll be found guilty. Your families are going to be torn apart because some in your family will be followers of Jesus, and some won't. Very family members will actually persecute you. And that had to have been humbling for the disciples. No more vying for power and influence in a new religious order. It's going to be destroyed. Well, if they weren't ready for comfort before, they should be now. Because he says, I will come again. And and we should expect a couple of things. Not just the persecution, but we should expect his real presence. And listen to what Jesus uh, says about his second coming. Uh, He says that his second coming will be uh, definitive. Verses 24 and 25. Uh, this uh, language of all of these cosmic things that are happening is actually pretty confusing. He, look what he says. He says that, uh, that there will be darkness, that the sun and the moon will go dim, and that uh, the, the stars will actually uh, be falling from heaven. One scholar of the 1800s uh, said this about this description of Jesus. Uh, he says that the description of the second coming consists almost entirely of quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus, the very Son of God, even He didn't create His own imagery for what the second coming would look like. 
He grounded the hope of the disciples slowly in the prophetic words of the Old Testament. That's the very same way our Lord and Savior strengthened himself in preparation for the cross. That's the very same way our Lord and Savior found assurance of God's plan, looking at that prophetic word. And Jesus, he actually uses imagery from the Old Testament to describe the second coming. And the first thing I want us to say is that it's definitive. Look at everything that's going to happen. It's, it's of cosmic significance. Uh, there is going to be this kind of darkness, almost like this uh, pre-creation chaos. And he says that the, the stars will be falling from heaven. The stars represent a heavenly power of some sort. And nothing is going to overturn the definitive nature of the coming of Jesus. This will happen and it will be cosmic. And the second thing is, it's very simply, it will be physical. It's definitive, cosmically so, but it's physical. When Jesus comes, he'll be seen with your eyes. He'll come with a body, be physically present, definitive, physical. It'll also be personal. Jesus is going to send out his angels for the purpose of gathering his elect. That's a word for Christians in this passage. The angels will be sent out with this, with this mission, go get my children and bring my children to me. The elect are gathered from afar. The second coming is going to be very personal. Jesus is looking for his children. And then finally, the second coming, it's definitive, physical, personal. It's also very oh, selfish, as it were. It's Jesus-centered. Look at verse 26 that his coming involves uh, clouds. This is like the expectation of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, that the Ancient of Days would come with clouds. But, but notice that God is not present in the temple in a pillar of smoke. Remember, that's what we have been accustomed to see, that God is present with the people in the tent and in the temple as a, well, as a pillar of smoke. But Jesus is saying all of that smoke, all of those clouds, they're about him, not about the tent, not about the temple. He is that presence of God. And notice that Christians are not gathered into Jerusalem like the gathering of the exiles and the gathering of the captives. That was an, ex that was an expected reality. But Jesus says the Christians are gathered not into Jerusalem, but to who? To me. The second coming is all about Jesus. It's definitive, it's physical, it's personal, and it's centered on Jesus. I want you to notice what's missing here. A scholar by the name of James Edwards uh, says, you need to see what's not here in Jesus' description of the second coming. There's no mention here of a millennium, nor a new Jerusalem, nor a rebuilt temple, nor a restoration of Israel, nor a state of Israel, nor a battle of Armageddon. What James Edwards is saying when he notices that is that these realities are not the kinds of things that comfort and care for us, enable us to endure persecution in a hostile world. What helps us is the coming of Jesus, the coming that is definitive and physical and personal and centered on He alone. Before I take us away from this point, I want us to ask one another, what will help us to endure persecution? 
What will help us to endure a hostility that we feel as Christian people? In a book that the elders are reading called Honest Evangelism, it's written by an English author, and as he comments upon uh, what it's like being a Christian in the UK, he says this. He says that in the UK, I think we're pretty much at the point where to hold Christian values and to speak Christian truth is to guarantee hatred. And then almost in an offhanded way, he adds, in the U.S., I think this is where they're heading. Well, how are you going to endure that if that's the case, where Christian values and Christian truth will secure your hatred in the world? How will you endure this? Will you simply ignore that it's happening? Denial? Will you accommodate culture with a new brand of Christianity that the world has never seen before and to be sure they're going to like it? Are you going to personally become cool and relevant and culturally sensitive and woke so that they won't think that you're a bigoted Christian? Or are you going to just keep your head down, be silent, and mind your own business? Jesus doesn't expect his disciples to to pursue any of those paths, does he? Jesus expects his disciples to not be afraid of the persecution. Why? because he will definitively, physically, personally, and selfishly come again. It's a promise. It cannot be denied. Jesus, Jesus will come again. And there's also more that he tells his disciples. He says that he'll come soon. Look at verses 28 through 31. These verses are actually pretty hard to digest. They're about paying close attention to something that you've already seen before. The word for lesson in this passage is the word parable. And everyone knows when a fig tree becomes tender and it begins to put out leaves that summer is coming, and it's coming rather quickly. And the disciples understand that. And the the very clearest understanding of these verses is that when we see the lesson of the fig tree, what we're doing is we're noticing that certain events are yielding to other events. He says in verse 29, when you see these things taking place, and these things is the destruction of the temple that he's already mentioned, When you see these things taking place, well, you know it's about to happen. Verse 30 is tricky, isn't it? This generation will not pass away until these things take place. Again, I believe that's a reference to Titus coming into Jerusalem. These things will happen in A.D. 70, and this generation will see it. But he's saying that these things in verse 30 refers to the things associated with Titus coming into Jerusalem. But even still, it's a warning. When the fig tree becomes tender and puts out leaves, you can count on the summer. When the leaves change colors and drop, as they're doing right now in our city, you can count on winter coming. When Christmas music begins to play in the stores, you can count on Christmas coming. And when General Titus comes and destroys the city of Jerusalem, you disciples can count on the second coming. Now, it's hard to know what is coming quickly and what is not coming quickly. But we live in an age right now where we are to understand that Jesus' second coming, well, that can happen at any moment. And and really the caution that is being applied to us is that if the fig tree has put out leaves, it's coming soon. And the fig tree has put out leaves. 
So one of the mistakes we make as Christians is that we uh, take the second coming, we push it so far out into the future that it almost becomes, well, irrelevant. It doesn't matter to us. And Jesus is offering a corrective. Don't think about that. One of my favorite commentators says that it was and still is true to say that the second coming is at hand. Ever since the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, men have been living in the last days. It's important for us to assume and to count on the second coming as something that will happen sooner rather than later. Let's not make it something that's irreverent, something that's way off in the future and not worth our attention. But at the very end of this passage, Jesus says that when he comes, he will come unexpectedly, but he is going to come with expectations. Interesting. We don't know when he will come. We know that he's going to come soon. But when he comes, he is going to have expectations of us. Jesus says not only do they not know when he'll come, but Jesus says that he himself doesn't know at this point in the story of redemption. Jesus himself doesn't know when the second coming will take place. But make no mistake about it, God's plan of redemption is for Christian people to live for him and with him for all eternity. And he will come, and when he comes, he has expectations. I think that the application for this passage is to really chastise us for our laziness as Christians. Jesus says that amidst all of the uh, unexpected nature of the second coming, not knowing when it will happen, amidst the uh, persecuted life of the Christian in these last days, Jesus says there are expectations, and he's being very practical to the disciples and to us. And he gives us in verse 34 the image of a doorkeeper. In verse 35, Mark describes the four watches of the night in a way that an average Roman would understand. Evening, midnight, the rooster crowing, dawn. And Jesus is going to say over and over and over again, as a doorkeeper, keep watch. Verse 33, be on guard, use your eyes. And he says, stay awake, be alert. Almost like an insomniac who can't sleep. And then in 35 and 37, he uses a different word, and he says, be alert, as in be alive, active. But this image of a doorkeeper is what I want us to have in our mind as we come to the Lord's table. The the Bible uses all kinds of words to refer to those who are Christians, and the word that he uses here is a a doorkeeper. And I want to say four things about the reality of being a doorkeeper, because if you profess faith in Jesus Christ this is you. Here are the four things that Jesus says to you as a doorkeeper. The first thing he says is that you as a doorkeeper, you're not the boss. You're not the boss. The house doesn't belong to you. You are given a certain work to do. And if you're not the boss, that means arrogance has no place in your life as a Christian. Do you understand that doorkeeper? In classical literature, the doorkeeper was sometimes an important person, a person who has authority to open and close the door. But more often than not, the doorkeeper is more like a janitor. They keep that part of the house clean and presentable and hospitable. 
And when someone comes to the door, they open the door because the, the master of the house has given them the authority to do so. It's not their house. The doorkeeper is not someone who is the boss. They're a servant. And you're going to open that door for who I tell you to open the door to. The doorkeeper isn't a boss, and you, Christian, you're not a boss either. You've been given a work to do, and there should be no arrogance in that work. But you should also know this, doorkeeper. You as a doorkeeper, you aren't alone. You have been given instructions. As a doorkeeper, you don't get to write the rules. You get to follow the commands of the master of the house. It's interesting, isn't it, that the man, he goes away on this long journey here at the very end of the passage, but he doesn't go away on a long journey without giving instructions. There is a relationship that the master of the house has with the doorkeeper even before the doorkeeper comes back for the second time. As Christians, we're doorkeepers that are not alone. We've been given instructions and we have a relationship with the one who will return again. He's not returning again to introduce himself to us for the first time. In the gospel, we actually know who he is. In God's scripture, we know who he is. In um, interaction in the life of the church, we know who he is. We have a relationship with him already. It's just that that relationship is going to get even better at his second coming. But make no mistake about it, you doorkeeper, not only are you not the boss, but you're not alone either. You know him and he is with you and he will come again. Notice also, Christian, as a doorkeeper, you're imperfect. You are filled with weaknesses. Jesus assumes it. How interesting it is that when we read these admonitions to, to be awake and to be on guard and to be alert, we all puff out our chest and we clench our fist and we, we look sternly at each other and we say, we can do this. Why do you think Jesus has to command us that? because we're actually the opposite. We're prone to go to sleep. We're, we're prone to ignore the will of the master of the house. This is exactly why we're told this. The doorkeeper is filled with weaknesses and is therefore imperfect. But to know that as a Christian, that there is no perfection in this life, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I'm going to call you a doorkeeper at that table. And when you hear that, I want you to think of yourself as a weak doorkeeper who needs the community of other weak doorkeepers. That you're not called to be perfect, and that you're not called to be the example that everyone has to follow. You're called to be a weak doorkeeper. Some days you're going to be alert, and some days snoring but you have your brothers and sisters right alongside there with you, sometimes awake and sometimes snoring. The doorkeeper isn't the boss, the doorkeeper isn't alone, the doorkeeper isn't perfect, but the doorkeeper is this. The doorkeeper is confident. No matter what happens in the circumstances of our life as Christian people, we have heard a promise, and the promise maker is a promise keeper. The owner will return. And if the doorkeeper is confident, then there's no room for cowardice. We're not the ones who have made the promise, and we're not the ones who are responsible for keeping the promise. 
we're just janitors in the narthex. It's who we are as Christians. We're not the boss, we're not alone, and we're not perfect. But he will come again. Stay alert, be on guard, and be confident. He will come again. Would you join me in prayer before we come to the table? Our Holy Father, we are grateful that you have sent to us Jesus, that he would be our rescuer, our deliverer. We are grateful for the message of the gospel, that we can enter into a relationship with him right now, that we can believe, that we can be a follower, that we can trust in his promises. But we're also grateful that the doubts that we have right now will be completely and utterly erased when he comes again. We thank you for the promise of salvation. We thank you for the promise of a second coming. Jesus, come. In your name, amen.